Today we are in Revelation 2, 19 to 28. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage? Revelation chapter 2, 19 to 28. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So our passage today covers this fourth in this series of, of churches uh, of seven letters in this Asia Minor uh, circuit. If you landed at the port of Ephesus, we're going so many miles around in a, a circular route to each church, and this is the fourth church in Asia Minor. The first was Ephesus. Ephesus was the church that left its first love. Next was Smyrna, the one church in Asia Minor that had no, without fault, at least the first one. There's one more later. They were persecuted. They were in poverty, but they were spiritually rich. And third was Pergamum, a church that stood up under persecution, but tolerated a morally compromised teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Now Jesus addresses the church in, in the smallest of these seven cities, and yet it's the longest letter, which kind of tells us that it doesn't matter how big the city is. What God's interested in is the church in that city. The condition of the church is more important than the size of the city. And Thyatira was a city with a lot of trade guilds. Since it was on a trade route, it offered opportunity to sell the goods that they produced there to trade caravans. Lydia, that we read about in the book of Acts, 
was a dealer of purple cloth who came from that city, and Paul, which Paul met in Philippi. And as in each letter, Jesus first gives the description of himself that corresponds to the message he's about to give to the church. Verse 18, And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet like burnished bronze. Fire and bronze are, are both symbols of judgment. Well, fire also purification in the Old Testament. The description warns of what they're about to hear in the letter. And first, we should note that Jesus describes himself as the Son of God. Now, all of these descriptions that Jesus uses at the beginning of each letter come from chapter 1. But we don't read the title of Son of God in chapter 1. Instead, we read the title Son of Man. However, because of the book of Daniel, Jews often equate those titles to one another. In Daniel chapter 3, um, uh, the there are the, th the men in the fiery furnace, and there's one more figure there, right? And then in Daniel chapter 7, there's this one that comes up before God to whom the whole world must worship. One title is Son of Man, one is Son of God, and Jews equate those as the same. So it's not uh, unusual here that Jesus would take the title uh, Son of Man in the first chapter and change it to Son of God in the second chapter. It's a title of authority. In Psalm chapter 2, the son of the king is prophesied to bring judgment on the earth. And we'll see this again at the end of the letter as Jesus is going to quote part of that psalm. The title son of God, the eyes of fire, the burnished bronze feet, they all are to bring to mind that fiery furnace and judgment. His eyes like a flame of fire. After describing that powerful, penetrating force of the word of God, the author of, he that's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is sharp and powerful. It's, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's alive. It cuts between soul and spirit. We talked about that in the Bible study this morning. But verse 13, after verse 12, comes verse 13, and it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to him to whom we must give an account. And the Jewish picture actually here, uh, uh, more like Roman because they were in a Roman culture, was some, sometimes the accused would not look in the face of his accuser. They would put a sharp uh, knife or sword under his chin and make him look up into the eyes of his accuser. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He sees right into the very thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Thyatira and the churches of our day may look like they are uh, full of upright, sacrificial worshipers of God and his goodness, but... Jesus sees past the surface and he looks right into the motivations behind our actions. 
He sees what each person is truly desiring. He knows what they put first in their life. He knows what they would do if they thought they could get away with it. We should always think of Jesus as having eyes like a flame of fire and remember that he can see our very thoughts. I, I grew up with that little song. Um, some of you probably did too. Be careful, little hands, what you do, right? You know that song? And there's a father up above looking down with tender love. So be careful, little hands, what you do, and eyes, feet, so forth. It's a way of mamas making their little boys be obedient. <laughs> but it's true. It's very true. His feet are like burnished bronze. Bronze is the material of judgment. Remember the snake on the pole in the wilderness made of bronze. And Jesus told Nicodemus it was a foreshadow of what Jesus would suffer, being hung on a pole as the sins of the world were upon, being judged upon him. The great altar in the tabernacle upon which everything was sacrificed, covered in bronze. Everything, in fact, in that outer courtyard, covered in bronze because it was a symbol of judgment, the judgment upon sin. The animal making atonement for sin, being punished in our place. And ultimately, the Lamb of God, Jesus, who would give himself as a sacrifice in our place. Even the labor for cleansing that the priests had to use before they went into the holy place was bronze, symbolizing there, there need to be purity, cleanness, judgment had to take place. So we see bronze symbolize judgment on, this, on sin. And that title, Son of God, Eyes of Fire, Feet of Burnished Bronze, all warned of judgment on sin that was coming. Verse 19, I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. Jesus began with his, with his commendation. It's always a good way to start if you need to correct somebody. <laughs> start with the, the good things that you see in their life. Otherwise, they might get overwhelmed and feel that there's no hope. But Jesus knows the good things that is happening in this church, despite the negative that we're about to get to. But Jesus begins with that commendation and he is looking for the good in every church and in your life and mine. He's searching for those whose hearts are fully committed to him, just as with the church of Ephesus. Jesus declares he knows their works, chapter two, verse two. We know that works don't, earn our salvation, but as James taught, our faith is made evident by our works. If Jesus is in us, if his life is in us, he's going to change us and our behavior is going to change. He, he starts us into that process of sanctification and the more we walk with him, the more conviction of sin, the more little things we start to notice, oh, I shouldn't do that because he's faithful to be purifying us. There were those in the church who were faithful servants of the Lord. Jesus lists the type of good works they had, love, faith, service, and patient endurance. And that's exactly the type of works that he expects when his presence is directing our lives. 
because the great command is to love him first with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. They had works of love, without which the works don't mean anything. They had works of faithfulness. They give, did not give in to the pressure to sacrifice to the pagan gods, the, the gods of the guilds, which means that they probably would lose their job and their financial security. And they were not self-serving, but followers of Jesus' example in serving others. And to top it all off, their latter works were greater than the first. They were not complaining about their difficulties, but instead were patiently bearing up under the threats and the mistreatment. That's a pretty amazing description of a church. If they could have stopped there, they would have just thought, wow, we're the best church in Asia Minor. Wouldn't it be wonderful if Jesus walked in here this morning and just said those, that, those lines? <laughs> but of course, there's often need for correction. Unlike Ephesus, their works of love and faith and servants, service had patiently endured and were increasing. They obviously hadn't left their first love, but they were growing in faith that resulted in increased works. Works are mentioned five times in this letter, contrasting good works with evil works. Like Pergamum, they refused to confront evil. Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. There was a woman in their midst who gave herself the title of prophetess. Jesus calls her Jezebel because of her similarity to Jezebel in the Old Testament. Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab. He was a king of the northern 10 tribes, and he married a woman of another nation who worshiped the Baals, the Baals, which uh, the worship often ended in cultic orgies. She was teaching and seducing Jesus' servants to practice immorality. We've previously talked about the immorality of some of, of the Roman temples. Apparently, she was teaching contrary to the apostles in Jerusalem's edict that they should not eat food sacrificed to idols or participate in sexual immorality. Um, her teaching was in direct contract with, contrast with that. And she even seduced them in doing so, probably by means of her so-called prophecies. If someone claims to be speaking for God, their words should never contradict scripture. If they do, it's a clear sign that they are a false prophet. She may have reasoned that the idols are nothing, they're nothing, they're just metal and stone. Paul said so in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Therefore, bow it down to them and lighting incense doesn't really mean anything. It would have been seductive as they might keep their jobs in the guilds if they would just make that compromise. Then they'd have meat to eat from the sacrifices. But the sin was giving the wrong message to those who knew that they were professing to be Christians, followers of Christ, along with the debauchery that often followed. 
Why would the elders of the church of Thyatira allow this to go on? Well, we can only speculate. She must have been quite an influential person with a large following. They may have been worried about people leaving the church if they denounced her. They may have felt compassion for those who would lose their income if they wouldn't sacrifice. The passage really doesn't tell us why, but it definitely leaves us with the impression that something should have been done. The shepherds of this fold, for one reason or another, would not confront the evil that was leading their sheep astray. It was not only spiritually damaging to those who listened to her, it probably took a toll on the marriages in the church as well. It hurt the witness of the church in the community and their physical well-being. The elders were failing the Lord in the flock by tolerating this evil that was in their midst. And Paul taught that when someone gives a prophecy, others should judge, 1 Corinthians 14, 29. They should see that it lines up with the word of God, and the elders were failing to do so. We have the same type of thing going on in the church at large. People take on the title of prophet as if they were in the office of an Old Testament prophet, which, by the way, ended with John the Baptist, Luke 16, 16. They claim authority over the local church elders, and when they are allowed to teach false doctrines, it's the elders who are ultimately responsible. They should take a stand and tell why the prophecy contradicts the word of God. I know that sometimes when they do so, they're the ones who end up being expelled from the church. But that doesn't change the responsibility they have from God. We don't serve the Lord only if things turn out like we'd like. We serve because Jesus is our Lord and Master. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. The Lord brought conviction to her, but she wouldn't listen. She refused to repent. She hardened her heart and decided she was going to continue in her ways regardless of God's warnings to her. Her teaching of compromising with the flesh gave her power over others, and she's not willing to let that go. It became her God. This is the pattern of every backsliding soul. Something in the old nature finds a foothold, and then we justify the sin. Then it is even glorified as something beneficial. We see that pattern in the garden in the very beginning. The Spirit of God brings warnings. We see consequences that that sin produces, and then we must choose whether we will go on serving sin or have a change of mind about its nature and its effects on our lives. We turn back to God, or we make sin our new God. The power she derived from her teaching became her new God. Though the local shepherds would not act, the great shepherd will. Verse 22, Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. 
God's next action to save the church of Thyatira was to bring physical affliction. When those she had misled see it, they'll have a chance to repent. The spiritual children who were born of her seductive teaching would die like the child of David and Bathsheba if they refuse to repent. Now, some people say it was her own children. Um, that's possible, a possible interpretation. Others see it as her spiritual children. I kind of lean towards that interpretation. In that age, they understood that sickness was a warning judgment from God. The Greek text actually here does not say sick. It just says bed. And so, um, Farrer comments, the punishment fits the crime. She who profaned the bed of love is pinned to the bed of sickness. This is probably the way to take it, he writes. Though some have thought that kline, the Greek word, um, was couch on which she reclined for a meal. She would be smitten as she engaged in idol worship. And others, that it's her funeral buyer, buyer. end of quote. So today we, we think ourselves way too sophisticated to think that illness is uh, God dealing with us. But I have seen sickness as a spiritual discipline to turn people from sinful choices myself included. I know some illnesses were the hand of God on the rebellious. That's not always the case, but it does happen. In one case, the timing was so obvious that everyone knew the person that was afflicted was being afflicted by God except the person themselves who had hardened their heart to the point they wouldn't even consider it. God does not always judge in this life. You know, we'd like him to. We'd like to see that if somebody uh, is, is rebellious and uh, uh, like, for example, we had somebody in a, on a Wednesday night one time that said, uh, You're, we're all Jesus, I'm Jesus. You just have to realize it. And Jesus didn't die for your sins. We, we would think it'd be awesome if he just got struck right there and he fell on the floor and said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Wouldn't that be great? But God doesn't always work that way. Thank God. <laughs> he knows what's best for them and best for us. And sometimes the judgment does not come until they stand before the throne. That was one of the quandaries of the psalmist. He wrote, why do the wicked seem to prosper and the godly are, are often afflicted and struggling to survive? And he says he couldn't understand until he entered the sanctuary of God and consider their end. And then he understood. God will balance the books. And sometimes he does it in this life so that others are warned. The judgment on this woman was to cause those servants of Jesus who had followed her teaching to repent and see the truth. End of verse 22. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. This judgment was to wake up the other churches that were compromising with immorality. We saw, we saw that in the previous letter. 
and to make the body of Christ in Asia Minor aware that Jesus searches our minds and hearts. Jesus is identifying himself with the God of the Old Testament, who's called the one who searches hearts and minds. That's in 1 Chronicles 28.9 and Psalm 7.9. That's what's implied by those eyes like a flame of fire. He knows what's behind our actions. He knows what is really the God of our lives. And he knows what, we're, what we dedicate our thought life to. He knows what our hearts long for, and he is just. He will give us according to our works, because our works flow from our heart. If they were good works from a heart filled with Jesus and love for him, then he'll reward us beyond our imagination. And if our heart was dedicated to things he created, and we worship and work for selfishness, then he'll reward us with the judgment that rebellious people deserve. Loving gifts more than the giver is evil. Every time I hear the expression, oh, that would mean the world to me, makes me cringe. Because it sounds like the things of this world are all that I desire. It's a declaration that we put the created things above the creator. Everyone who does that eventually ends up empty and disappointed because created things will never fill the hole in our hearts. Only God is big enough to fill that emptiness. Only his love brings the satisfaction we were created to long for. Verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who don't hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Jesus taught that there would be terrors among the wheat in the church. The church will always have in our midst those who serve other gods. And we're told not to try to remove them. We can't see their hearts. Of course, this doesn't apply to the false teachers like this woman who Jesus called Jezebel. We're instructed to confront them. We're told not to tolerate evil, but in most cases, we can't tell what's really in a person's heart. Only God can see that. And so we have our imperfect church that's waiting for the day of perfection when tares are pulled and the wheat is fully ripe. Somebody once said, uh, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because then it won't be perfect anymore. <laughs> well, if there's humans, there's imperfection, amen? There were those in the tolerant church who were faithful to the Spirit of God. They refused to compromise. Their increasing works of love, faith, and service were a sign of their true heart's condition. People who love Jesus with their all. They refused temptation to learn the secret of the deep things of Satan. The teacher may have been calling them the deep things of God, and Jesus turned it around and said, no, it's the deep things of Satan. They rejected the enticement of power, choosing rather to be satisfied with their Savior. Jesus did not need to add any other burden to them. They are yoked to him. Their burden is light. 
He may have been referring to that expression from the Acts Council in Acts chapter 15 when the apostles said, don't partake of the food offered to idols or sexual immorality and we're not going to lay any other burden on you. It's very similar language. They only need to do one more thing and it's the thing that we all need to do. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. Hold tight to your faith, your love for God and his glorious son, Jesus. Never give up never, or give in, persevere. If the Lord had given that woman time to repent, it sounds like she may have been a believer, but she didn't hold fast to the end. The seduction of evil enticed her old nature, nature and she gave herself over to her desires. Desire conceived sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. James chapter 1, verse 15. Watch your heart. Sin is seductive. It often comes in the wake of dissatisfaction with how things turn out, and it entices you to accept a compromise. One compromise leads to another compromise. We justify it and we make it out to be something spiritual or something that's not really that bad. But in fact, we've talked ourselves out of the true faith because we didn't get what our flesh desired. There's a parallel with Jezebel and, and Babylon in chapter 18. Those of you who are familiar with the book of Revelation, I just wanted to bring this out because the spirit behind Jezebel and the spirit behind Babylon, which is is the world system that Satan reigns over, is the same spirit. Both lead people spiritually astray with the motive of fi financial gain. Both are said to be immoral. Both are said to be guilty of fornication. Both are facing great tribulation and utter destruction. Both are given time to repent. And in both cases, believers are called to separate themselves from them and both are judged according to their works. Jesus closes each letter with a promise to the conquerors, to the ones who do hold fast till his return. Verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan? Matthew chapter four, Luke chapter four. One of the temptations was authority over the nations. Remember, he said, behold, all these kingdoms and the glory of them, I'll give it to you if you just bow down and worship me. It wasn't God's time or God's way, but Jesus will ultimately end up with authority over all nations. And that brings us back to Psalm two. In that psalm, God promises the Son the gift of all nations. Verse Chapter 2, verse 8 of Psalm says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus promises to give that authority to the conquerors who keep his works until the end as to opposed to those who do Jezebel's works. His work is is to believe on the Son. John 6, verse 29. 
His work is letting yourself be yoked to Jesus. His work is a daily obedience to the Holy Spirit. Then as the body of Christ, you'll have authority over the nations of this world. The disciples were rebuked for fighting over that authority before Jesus was arrested. But all we need to do is keep clinging to him until the end. But that requires daily fueling the flame, a life lived with, in communion with him. Brothers and sisters, the, this verse promises that if you endure, you will rule the nations. Verse 27, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. The quote is again from Psalm 2, and it continues declaring Jesus is going to reign in judgment. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them and pieces like a potter's vessel is Psalm 2, verse 9. It's interesting that all, all throughout these letters and even the book of Re all the book of Le Revelation, there's little f phrases through, from the Old Testament and even some from the New Testament because he's the word of God. Of course, he's going to quote himself. <laughs> Jesus will give that authority at the resurrection. He will apply it through the conquerors. And I believe that this refers to ruling over the nations during the millennial kingdom. The meek will inherit the earth. But there's more. It even gets better. Verse 28. And I will give him the morning star. <laughs> It would be enough to be rewarded with rule over the nations. But what is this that Jesus is promising? It's the same thing that he has promised the other church overcomers. It's himself. In chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus calls himself the morning star. At the end of each letter, he promises the ultimate gift of all. If we could grasp this, to know him as we are known, to understand fellowship with the one who loved us enough to not die for us, we'd be so fixated on living for him each and every moment that there'd be no need to ask us to hold fast till he comes. We'd be clinging ever tighter. Verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sadly, this church of Pergamum did not have an ear to hear, which is a warning to us. During the second century, another false prophet led the church into the heresy of continued revelation that eventually destroyed the church. Uh, by continued revelation, uh, I mean they put their words that they called prophecies on level with scripture. It's a heresy that's rampant today. Prophets claiming to speak for God without submitting to the judgment of the elders, as Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 14, 2, 29. Blessed are those who hear. Do we hear? Because if you hear, the word says you're blessed. Now that word, um, to hear 
going back all the way to the Old Testament, Shema means to hear and do. It doesn't just mean it goes in your ear. It means you act on what you hear. Do we hear the Spirit telling us to persevere in works that flow from the Spirit and let them increase as time passes? Do we hear the Spirit tell us to hold fast till he comes? Do we hear Jesus promise that if we do, we will rule the nations and receive the ultimate prize of all, the glorious presence of Jesus, the morning star? May God give us grace to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen? Amen. Joe, would you lead us in a closing song and then I'll bring the benediction.